0: If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1040. Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to read verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, reading verses 11 through 21. This is the Word of God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, "'Come, gather for the great supper of God, "'to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, "'the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, "'and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, "'both small and great. "'And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth "'with their armies gathered to make war against him "'who was sitting on the horse and against his army. "'And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, "'who in its presence had done the signs "'by which he deceived those who had received "'the mark of the beast,' and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." May God give us ears to hear his word. I grew up mostly in the 1980s. Those were good years, and I have many fond memories from my childhood. Uh, But one not-so-pleasant memory that sticks with me from the 80s was how just about everybody thought the world was going to end in a nuclear holocaust. You see, these were the days of the Cold War. The United States and the Soviet Union, we weren't really on very good terms, and both countries had nuclear weapons. So the fear was that maybe Russia would nuke Washington, D.C., we'd turn around and nuke Moscow, and next thing you know, the entire human race would be obliterated in this nuclear holocaust. That was the 1980s. Today, most people aren't talking about nuclear holocaust anymore. Today, people think the world's gonna end in a very different way. Today, people are talking about ecological disaster. Due to carbon emissions and too many plastic straws, the ice caps are gonna melt, the oceans are gonna rise, it's gonna just inundate the cities and our world as we know it will cease to exist. That's what many people believe these days. I do find it curious that about every decade or so, a new theory arises as to how the world's going to end. Maybe it's massive overpopulation. Maybe it's that the sun is going to burn out. Maybe it's attacked by aliens. Maybe it's a gigantic asteroid that's going to crash into our planet and destroy us. Maybe it's that artificial intelligence is going to somehow take over and enslave us all. But these theories, they become wildly popular. They often move people to spend billions of dollars, but then they're replaced a few years later by a different theory of how the world's going to end. You think about it, but it's actually impossible to not have some idea as to how human history is, we know it's going to end. You know, unless you just totally avoid thinking about anything serious, and I know a lot of people do that, they just kind of Netflix themselves to death, but uh, unless you uh, avoid thinking about serious things, you must have some conception about how the world's going to end. Maybe ask yourself this question, how do you think human history is going to wrap up? Uh, What event, what happenstance is going to take place that's going to conclude history as we know it? Well, it's interesting that there's one view of how the world's going to end that's remained consistent for the last 2,000 years. Uh, Despite all the rise and falls, all these other views, nuclear holocaust and ecological disaster, there's one view that's been with us for at least 2,000 years, and that's the second coming of Jesus. From the very beginning, Christians have taught that the way human history is going to wrap up is when the same Jesus who died on the cross and rose again comes back to earth. And when he comes, he will judge his enemies, glorify his people, and bring the undiluted kingdom of God to earth. And then, and then only, will human history as we know it conclude. Well, we come this morning to our study of Revelation 19, of Jesus and his second coming. But before we jump into Revelation 19, I want to make a very important preliminary comment. The fact that the Bible teaches that Jesus will return to earth to judge the living and the dead, that is undisputed by true Christians. Uh, This is taught countless times throughout the Bible, and this is something believers in Jesus, again, have believed since the very earliest times. And yet, as you probably know, what's not so agreed upon are some of the finer details of the end times timetables. And we're talking about good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. Things such as the timing and nature of the rapture, when the Antichrist will be revealed, the identities of the various characters in the book of Revelation, uh, the timing and the nature of the millennial kingdom, the role of the nation of Israel, all of that and so much more good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians disagree on. And having been your pastor for the last 14 years, I know that this includes many in this very room. Uh, for most of this congregation's history, we have accepted a variety of views on the finer details of the end times timetable, and that actually hasn't hindered local church ministry. If anything, I think it's encouraged deeper Bible study and some good natured debates. So what this morning's sermon is, it's really not arguing for one view or the other of some of these finer details. And it's not some sort of full-scale technical chronology of how the end's going to unfold. Uh, If you're looking for that sort of thing, there's plenty of books. We've got some in our church library that we could point you to. But instead, what we're going to be doing this morning in this sermon is meditating on truths in Revelation 19 that are designed to be a source of hope to believers and fear to unbelievers. Really, that ought to be your response in light of what we're going to be looking at today. If you're a believer in Jesus, hope. The King is coming. The judge of all the earth will come. But if you're not a believer... If you've not yet put your hope in the Lord Jesus, hopefully this sermon will strike fear into your heart and move you to flee to Jesus before it's too late. Well, keeping that in mind, let's look now at Revelation 19. And the first truth I'd like you to consider with me is how when Jesus comes the second time, he will come as a victorious king. However you imagine him now, know that when he comes the second time, he will come as a victorious king. Let's begin in verse 11. Now, there are a few things I'd like you to notice with me from these verses. And as we describe these, talk about these, try to imagine this scene in your head. I mean, this is a very vivid scene, and I think it's designed to elicit pictures and imaginations. So try to picture what we're talking about here. First, you'll notice how John, he looks up into heaven, and all of a sudden, there's almost a tear made in the sky. He says, I saw heaven opened. Understand that right now, Jesus is in heaven. That's where he is this very second, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He ascended there 40 days after his resurrection, and for the last 2,000 years, that's where he's been, seated in heaven. But a day is coming when heaven will be opened. Again, the, the clouds will part, and it's as if a portal will be there in the sky, no longer heaven and earth separated. Then Jesus will rise from his throne, he will mount this great white stallion, and he will descend to earth to do what this passage describes. You'll notice how Jesus is riding a white horse. I know we've talked about this before, but in the Roman Empire, the white stallion was reserved for victorious generals, for Caesars and people like that. If, say, a general just won this great victory, they'd have a parade. And what would the victorious general ride but a white stallion, people cheering as he came in. That's how Jesus is portrayed here. When he comes again, he is coming as a victor, riding the white stallion. You'll see the name that's given there to Jesus, verse 11. He's called faithful and true. This is describing his character. He is faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. And this ought to move us to rejoice because as we're going to see, he's coming to judge. Isn't it a comfort that the one who's coming to judge the earth is faithful and true? He will judge with fairness. He will judge with equity, giving to all of us what we deserve. That's why it says in verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Realize this passage is describing the purpose of Jesus' return. When he returns, it will not be to make peace. It will not be tidings of good joy and however Matthew 2 puts it. I can't remember how it puts it right now. But when he comes a second time, then all offers of peace will be over. All invitations to repent and be saved will be done. Your fate will be sealed and Jesus will come to judge his enemies and to condemn those who have rebelled. Now, something important to point out is that this passage is describing Jesus' return as it pertains to non-Christians, not Christians. You see that? This is not the way in which Jesus will meet those who trust in him. When the Bible describes Jesus coming for his saints, there's an entirely different emphasis. It's one of comfort and hope. Just to give you an example of this, over in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is describing how Jesus will meet his people when he comes again. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what it will be like for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus when he comes again. When we meet him, he'll come as our good shepherd, as our elder brother, as our heavenly protector. So if your hope is in Jesus, you need not fear the wrath and judgment seen in this passage. But if your hope is not in Jesus, you better fear. Look at a few more details here. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. You ever seen somebody when they're really angry and you can see it in their eyes? Uh, maybe they're not even saying anything, but you can see their eyes are just kind of bugging out of their head, and their eyes, they look almost like coals taken out of a fireplace. That's so what Jesus' eyes are looking like when he returns, and this is almost certainly indicating his anger, his wrath towards sin. He is angry that for thousands of years, evil has taken place, and he's coming to deal with it. Verse 12, on his head are many diadems. Diadems, they were the crowns that kings wore. And if it sounds weird that he's wearing multiple diadems, realize that would not have been weird in the first century. It was common in those days, if you conquered another king, to take his crown and actually weld it to your crown. Uh, your two crowns would be taken to a goldsmith. You'd kind of work it together and, and shape it so that you'd have this multi-tiered crown indicating that now his kingdom was part of your dominion. And as you can see here, Jesus is wearing many diadems, indicating that he's the true king of the world, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. Another detail to notice, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, you don't need to be a butcher to imagine what this is like. You ever gotten a blood stain on your clothing? I mean, it just gets in there deep, and you can't get it out. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, he's coming back in his robe is dipped in blood, immersed in blood. The question is then, whose blood is this? Whose blood has made Jesus' robe red? Now, some say this is the blood of Jesus' enemies, and that is quite possible. We're going to talk about that in a moment, the way in which he's going to stomp out the wine press of the wrath of God, and it's possible that this is the blood of his enemies that has sort of splashed up on him. But I prefer to see this as actually Jesus' own blood, the blood of the cross by which he paid for our sins. If you trace the theme of Jesus' blood throughout the book of Revelation, this is repeatedly emphasized as sort of Jesus' victory banner. Jesus is victorious because of the victory won at the cross. We studied this passage a few weeks ago, but in Revelation 5:9 we read this. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and people, and language. In the book of Revelation, Jesus' own blood is as if it's a flag waving, the victory flag. So that's why I see him when he's descending from heaven, he's wearing this blood soaked tunic, pointing to his own victory on the cross. One final detail look at verse 13. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. If there was any confusion about the identity of this white-horsed rider, here it's all clarified. Who is this one? It is the word of God. Now, the apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation, he also wrote the gospel of John. And if you go back to John 1.1, we read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is this mighty warrior riding on the white horse coming to judge? This one wearing the blood-soaked tunic? It is Jesus, the Word of God. When he comes a second time, he is not coming as a humble Galilean carpenter. He is coming as a victorious warlord. And you've got to ask yourself, are you ready for that coming? Are you prepared to meet Jesus when he comes again? To earth. a few more details look at who's coming with him verse 14 and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses now identifying who these armies are is helpful for rightly appreciating this passage some say that these armies are the saints believers who have died and already gone to heaven and there is a sense in which that's true We know, for instance, from 1 Thessalonians 4, that when Jesus comes again, the saints are going to come with him. But I think that this is not talking about saints. I think this is talking about angels, the heavenly hosts. If you look at many passages, it emphasizes that when Jesus comes again, he's going to come with all the angels with him. It's just like Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Pastor John Piper has a helpful little meditation on this comment. He writes this. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, And all the angels with him, all them. Did you get that? Heaven will be left empty of its armies. All the angels will be with him. This means that the triumph is so sure that one doesn't have to cover his rear guard. No one will threaten heaven. All the armies of God on the front line with the Son of Man. Jesus could handle the conquest of earth alone. He is God. But the angels come to magnify him and do his bidding. Now, in the event you want to imagine how many angels that is coming with him, we know from Revelation 5:11 that there are, at this very moment, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels worshiping Jesus. If you calculate that literally, that is multiple millions of angels, a crowd bigger than you've ever imagined. So think of that: Jesus descending, and behind him are millions of angels. And look at how they're dressed, verse 11, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. So he's got this gigantic army all in white, millions of people, one man in the front on a white stallion with multiple crowns on his head, and he's in a robe dipped in blood. Just try and imagine seeing that scene. Now, Just imagine you're going about your ordinary life, you know, maybe working in your cubicle or doing dishes or something like that, and all of a sudden somebody comes, you've got to get outside, you've got to see this. You go outside and you see this coming down out of the sky. How would you respond? I mean, what would happen in your heart when you saw this taking place? I suppose it depends on whether you're a believer or a non believer. Again, if you're a believer, this is Jesus coming to rescue you and to take you to heaven. If you're not a believer, too terrifying to say. Now, notice in this passage, how Jesus is clearly coming to reign. Verse 11 or pardon me, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, even he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, if you look at that word there for sharp sword, it's actually a very specific word for sword. Uh, there were different words for the different types of swords in the Bible. This is actually quite fascinating. There is one word for the short kind of dagger sword that Roman soldiers used for defense. Kind of a two-foot-long double-edged dagger-type thing that you kept, kind of as a last resort. If you got cornered, you could pull this out and stab somebody with it. That's not the word used here. The word used here is the word for the long sword, this kind of four or five-foot slashing, stabbing, slaughtering weapon. That's the word used for the sword here. It's going to be coming out of Jesus' mouth. Now, what's up with this coming out of Jesus' mouth? I mean, I mean that's kind of a weird picture, isn't it? Well, describing, answering this question well, John MacArthur writes in his very helpful commentary on Revelation that the sword comes out of his mouth symbolizes the deadly power of Christ's words. Once he spoke words of comfort, but now he speaks words of death. Christ will yield that sword with a deadly effect as he strikes down the nations. You see, this is what the sword is. It's not that he's vomiting a projectile Is that there's so much power in the words of Jesus that they're likened to a sword. His words have an energy, a force to kill and to make alive, to wound and to heal. And that's what's conveyed in the sword metaphor. I remind you, if we've said so many times before here, that God's words are not merely sounds, Uh, they're not merely noise, but God's words are power. They actually do things. It was by God's word that He created the world. It was by the word that Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He just said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came forth. It's by God's word that we are awakened to believe the gospel. And at the end of time, it's God's word that will resurrect and then condemn those who don't believe. And all during this age, before Jesus comes again, we have the privilege to study this very same word in the Bible. Realize that that your Bible is made of the very same substance as the word that created the universe, as the word that resurrected Lazarus, as the word that will resurrect the dead at the end of time. That's what's in your Bible. And that's why we want the Bible to be at the center of our entire life as a congregation. The other detail describing Jesus' reign here is in verse 15, it says he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now that would have been unusual. Typically, king's scepters in those days, they were made of gold, maybe silver, and they were encrusted with jewels. This rod here is very different. It's a rod of iron. It's demonstrating strength and power. When Jesus comes again, he will be the unchallenged king of kings and lord of lords. No one will stand up to him, and his reign will be supreme. Now, in verse 15, we have a particularly horrifying picture of what will happen. And this is the sort of thing that if it weren't in the Bible, I would never really preach it to you. But since it's in the Bible, I have to preach it to you. But look at verse 15. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, to understand what's going on here, you've got to understand how wine was made in the ancient times. You probably remember this from elementary school. But what would they do to make wine? They'd get this big vat, imagine kind of like a hot tub, and they'd fill it up with grapes. Remember this? And then you'd take off your shoes and you'd pull up your tunic and kind of tie it around your waist, and you'd hop in and crush the grapes with your feet. Remember this? And then they'd have a little hole, and the grape juice would flow out of that, that's how they made the wine. They actually did that until about 100 years ago in winemaking. That's the metaphor that's used here to describe the way in which Jesus is going to punish the rebellious. He's going to crush them and stamp on them until their blood flows in the street. Again, if that weren't in the scriptures, I would not say it. But since it's here, I must say it. This is how Jesus is going to deal out the wrath of God on those who don't know him. Just like grapes are crushed in a wine press, so also the bodies and the souls of non-Christians will be crushed when Jesus comes again. Now, lest you think what I'm saying here is strange, realize this metaphor is used more than once in the Bible. Over in Isaiah 63, 2, Isaiah asks the Lord this, Lord, why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads the winepress? And the Lord said to me, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the sort of thing you see in horror movies. I mean, isn't it? The kind of movies I avoid. This is what we have here. The wrath of Jesus, when he comes again to judge the earth, is horrifying. But no doubt, he is coming to crush his enemies under his feet until their blood flows. Now, it's very possible at this point you're thinking, you know, I don't really like this image of Jesus. This image of Jesus doesn't make me feel very comfortable. You know, sure, I can see it's here in the Bible, but can't we just ignore stuff like this and talk about Jesus, you know, taking care of children and Jesus healing the sick? Honestly, I've come to believe that we actually need depictions like Revelation 19 if we're to make sense of the evil that's in our world. I mean, just think about the horrific evil that's in our world. You know, think about what ISIS has done in the last five years, crucifying people and burning them alive. Think about what happened to that family down in Mexico last week. Horrific evil. You know, if you know anything about the Holocaust... Six million Jews systematically tortured to death? If there's that kind of evil in our world, and if God's not going to do anything about it, would that be a just, righteous God? No, we should thank God that in his grace, he gave us passages like this to give us some emotional closure. To know that in the end, all evil will be justly dealt with and that nothing will be swept under the rug. Yes, it's scary, but we need it. Your soul needs it. One last detail describing the king. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, to understand this metaphor, we need to go back and think of what a king was in Bible times. Today, we have a very bad definition of kings. When we think of kings, we typically think of the British monarchy. And what does the British monarchy do? Answer, not very much. Uh, You know, they wear fancy clothes and they're in the news a lot, but they, they really don't do a whole lot, am I right? You've got to realize in Bible times, a king was more like a warlord. He was an emperor, military general, commander-in-chief of the army, very, very different than how we imagine, say, Queen Elizabeth. In the Bible times, the king had unlimited power. If you looked at him funny, he could toss you in the fiery furnace. He was also the commander-in-chief of the army. He'd typically be at the front of the army leading him out to fight at the field of battle. So that's the kind of king that Jesus is when it says he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the ultimate warlord, the ultimate emperor ruling over the universe. And believe me, if if he's not your king, he's your enemy. Do you hear me? If he is not your king, he is your enemy. And if you don't embrace his loving leadership, when he comes again, he will do to you the very things described in this passage. And I say it again, you might not believe me now, but on that day, you will believe. Now, something I want us to meditate on is, is this the way in which people in our world today imagine Jesus? You know, if you were to ask the typical man on the street, how do you imagine Jesus? Would they describe this victorious, scary warrior king? Probably not. A lot of people imagine Jesus as a loving shepherd holding children in his arms. A lot of people imagine Jesus as a good religious teacher, teaching us to turn the other cheek. A lot of people imagine Jesus as a healer, taking away our sicknesses and diseases. A lot of people imagine Jesus dying on the cross. All of that is good and appropriate and true. Don't hear me contradicting any of that. But what I want to emphasize this morning is that you need to add this Jesus from Revelation 19 to your total picture of how you imagine Jesus. You know, we want a complete, comprehensive, biblical portrayal of Jesus, and in addition to all that we think of Jesus with the lambs and the healing and the miracles and dying on the cross, include also the warrior king who's coming to judge the living and the dead. Yes, the Jesus of the Bible is the lamb who was slain, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, and when he comes again, he will come as king of kings and lord of lords, slaying his enemies by his fiery word. This is a portrait of Jesus we need to believe in and embrace. I know I've mentioned this before, but I believe this is part of why so many people think of Christianity as a woman's religion. This has been proven time and time again for over 100 years now, that a lot of guys think of Christianity as a woman's religion, kind of weak, soft, effeminate. So if you're kind of a dude that's into guns and trucks and bacon, you just think Christianity's not for you. Part of that kind of thinking comes from the fact that we've ignored passages like Revelation 19. We know the gentle shepherd. We know the the healer and the teacher and the humble Galilean carpenter. But we don't know the king of kings and lord of lords with the fire in his eyes who's coming to judge the wicked. And it's really hard to get guys who are into guns and trucks and bacon and so forth excited about an effeminate Jesus, isn't it? This is why I recommend to you, if you're a parent of boys, include Revelation in your Bible readings. Yes, I mean, read the Gospels. Obviously, it's, that's essential. But especially young boys who are all about you know, soldiers and ninjas and cowboys who love that sort of thing, include passages from Revelation 19. To see that this is part and parcel of who Jesus is. The ultimate warrior. Quickly, there's a second truth from this passage I'd like us to meditate on. And that's how when Jesus comes the second time, he'll crush human rebellion. When Jesus comes the second time, he'll crush human rebellion. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Again, this is one of those gruesome pictures that were it not in the Bible, I would not tell it to you. But again, since it's in the Bible, I have to tell it to you. The scene depicted here would have been very common in ancient warfare. And actually, it's still common in some places in the world today. But it was not uncommon in the ancient world after a war for the battlefield to be strewn with bodies everywhere. Uh, Dead, rotting, bloody bodies, even some guys that weren't even dead yet, maybe half dead. And what would happen after the war was over, the fighting was over, carrion birds would come in and start eating the bodies. It's disgusting, but welcome to real life. Vultures and ravens and crows, they'd swoop down and be eating these bodies Realize that's that's what's pictured here as part of the overall wrath of God on the unrepentant. And did you notice the way in which it's God who summons these birds? It's not just a coincidence that they show up. The angel says to the birds, Come gather for the great supper of God. And even more strangely, it's called the great supper of God. And you'll notice the way in which these birds are summoned before the battle even begins. Kind of reminds you of one of those old westerns. You know, you got Clint Eastwood on one side, and then you got, you know, little Larry Schneebly over here. And the crows are starting to circle over Larry Schneebly because they know what's going to happen before the battle even begins. You see what I'm saying? That's what it's going to be like on that last day. The outcome will be so clear, the birds aren't even wondering which side to start gathering on. Verse 19, we're not going to be able to say everything that could be said about these verses. Dig into them on on your own. But look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. One of the truths that's taught repeatedly is that before Jesus comes again, there'll be this massive war kind of united against Jesus. But Jesus is going to obliterate that with a word. Verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was seated on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now this then is the climax of the great battle of the ages, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the devil. But you'll notice curiously that there really isn't much of a war here. There's not this prolonged battle with just, you know, days and weeks of fighting. No, Jesus just, using his word, captures the beast, slaves the wicked, and that's the end of that. And the question you need to consider is, why is this? Why? I mean, it's almost anticlimactic to have this giant army coming and the, the, these, all these nations gathered, and then that's it? Well, here's the reason why there's really not much of a battle. It's because thousands of years prior to that, at a previous battle, that's where the victory was secured. Thousands of years prior, when Jesus died on the cross, that's when the serpent was crushed. That battle took place at the cross. That's what decided the outcome. And that's why, at the very end, there's only a little bit of mopping up to do. It's just like, The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.14, Jesus himself partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see that it was at the bloody cross that the serpent was crushed. It was at the bloody cross that Satan and all his principalities were disarmed. It was at the bloody cross that the powers of darkness were broken and Jesus became the king of kings and lord of lords. That's how powerful the cross is. Remember that next time we sing the Old Rugged Cross. Now, to wrap our time up this morning, I want to address those of you who might be here today and who are not believers in Jesus. You've not yet put your hope in Jesus for this life and the life to come. If that's the case, we are delighted you're here. Sincerely, thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. But if that's you, let me say a quick word to you. I have no idea what you think of Jesus. Maybe you think he's just a legend, maybe some sort of religious fanatic, maybe a myth. But realize that whatever you think about Jesus now, it's the Jesus that we've been studying here in Revelation 19 who is coming to wage war against you if you will not turn to him in repentant faith. The Bible is so clear that a day is coming when all of us will stand before Jesus. Every last one of us in this room. And for all of us who finally and ultimately reject Jesus' loving leadership, this is God's promise. 2 Thessalonians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Realize if you're here today and you've not put your hope in the Lord Jesus, God is not going to allow your disregard for Jesus to go on forever. God's plan is that every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And to all who ultimately ignore Jesus when he comes again, he'll say to you, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But now, because of God's great love, now there's a way of salvation. God did not leave us to die in our sins. Though we are all sinful rebels, deserving the judgment described in this passage, he provided a way of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that way was through punishing punishing his own son Jesus on the cross. I imagine you've heard John 3.16 before. Maybe you hear it again with new eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, unlike all of us, Jesus never disobeyed God. Though he grew up and went through all the stages and phases of normal human development, he always obeyed. Obeyed as a toddler, obeyed as a young man, obeyed as an adult man, always obeying. And yet we know from the Bible that Jesus died on the cross. And here's how you've got to imagine it. Jesus is crushed on the cross so that we won't be crushed by Jesus on Judgment Day. Remember I was talking about the wine press and all of that earlier? In a way, that takes place on the cross, on Jesus, for all of those who would ever trust in him. He's taking the punishment we deserve so that on Judgment Day we won't be crushed by the wrath of God. Jesus dies, he's buried, but we know from Scripture that three days later God raises Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that our hope is not in vain. So in light of Jesus' two comings... First time to die and rise again, second time to judge the living and the dead, we're all confronted with only two ways to live, two options. Will you continue to reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If so, the Bible is clear that when he comes again, he will come as your enemy and you will be slain in his wrath. Everything we've talked about here in Revelation 19 will be fulfilled in you if your hope is not in Jesus. On the other hand, will you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Will you rely on his death and resurrection? Will you look to him as the only hope for your sinful soul? If so, you will be immediately forgiven by God, reconciled to God. You'll live forever with him. And when Jesus comes again, he will not come as a terrifying warlord to destroy you, but as your loving shepherd to take you to be with him forever. Jesus' return leaves us with only two options and realize your decision reveals your destiny. So I ask you, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today, and today be made right with God before it's too late. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is counterintuitive, but we do thank you for passages like this. They are scary. In in, in a way, they're horrifying. And yet we need them. We need them to make sense of the evil that's in the world, the evil that's that's in our hearts. So thank you, Lord, for passages like Revelation 19 teach us to come to love them. Lord, we do pray for any within the hearing of my voice who have not yet put their hope in Jesus, that today would be the day that they turn in faith and embrace him. For those of us who do, move us to joy, to hope, to see Jesus coming as our blessed hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.